Hello and welcome to the Crowdfunding Champions podcast. I'm Rob Wilson and my guest today is Katie Marachi, partner at Jamjar, the early stage consumer VC who has backed the likes of Deliveroo, Oatly and Babylon. Jamjar recently closed their second fund, raising over £100 million and following the footsteps of Seedcamp and Passion Capital, decided to open up this opportunity to the crowd. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Now, Katie, for those who aren't familiar with Jamjar, would you be able to start by just giving us a quick overview of Jamjar and the types of businesses that you invest in? Sure. Um, so we are a consumer brand investor, mainly digital consumer brands. So about 89% of the portfolio are digital brands. And we have a few what we call offline brands as well. Historically, we've bought things like Deliveroo, Babylon Health, Tails.com. So we're pretty sector agnostic within consumer. And it's myself and the three Innocent Drinks founders that are the four partners at Jamjar. And understand that you've been part of the fund since day one. Is that right? Yes. Well, since we formalized it. So I met my three partners whilst we were working at Innocent together, where they were angel investing on the side in various consumer brands. So, so they were already doing angel investing independently of me, but they sold out to Coke 2012, north of half a billion exit suddenly had a lot more time and money to focus on what they loved. And that was this. So we left 2013 and started Jamjar two days later with their personal capital originally. And you've just announced the close of your second fund. Would you be able to just tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so to be honest, it, it came out of two things. The first was we were finding more and more that we were leaving really valuable pro rata on the table in terms of follow-on because we were ultimately we were capital constrained. So that was a shame. And it felt like, you know, even if we as a fund didn't take it up, we should potentially at least offer it out to other other people in our network, etc. So it just felt like a missed opportunity for us and our network. So we thought that seemed like a good reason to raise some money from our network and not leave that on the table. And the other thing was we were increasingly being asked to do bigger checks at the early stage. So we're a very collaborative fund. We typically collaborate with other funds on deals and other angel investors, et cetera. But I think, you know, the size of rounds are going up and we're happy to lead we're happy to follow as well. But in both instances, it was bigger check requirements, especially if a founder wants to keep a tight LP base. So for that reason as well, we thought it would be useful to have a bigger pot of capital. And it felt like the right time, you know, we'd been doing it as a, we'd built a team and we'd been doing it as four partners for, for seven years, um, eight years by the time we raised. So we felt our team dynamic was right and the confidence that we had in terms of the success of Fund One felt like the right time to, to talk to external investors. And in total, you raised £102 million for this fund. Could you break that down for us and, and tell us a little bit more about who these investors were? Yeah, so the biggest backer was the British Business Bank, which is public money which is really nice. They're a great investor, not least because they do so much due diligence that it means there's less to do to prepare for any other LP. I don't think we had to prepare anything else above what what we'd already prepared for them, which was really nice. And 
they're also great because they actually give enhanced returns to other LPs. So they're 50% of the fund, but instead of taking 50% of the upside, they take, in our instance, 20% of the upside. So that's really nice benefit for other LPs that are involved in the fund and a kind of enhanced return profile. And then, yeah, the second largest investor is the partners themselves at Jumjar, which is really nice. We put our money where our mouth is. That was important to us as well in terms of, you know, retaining control of the fund, et cetera. We're still the decision makers and, you know, we're major LPs as partners. So I think that's nice for us. And it's also good for other LPs to see that, you know, we've got skin in the game as well. Yeah. And then the Cedars portion is a portion that we're really excited by. And that came out of the ethos of, we wanted to share with our, certainly with our Fund One founders, with friends, family, you know, our network and the general public. You know, we are a consumer fund and bringing in, bringing consumers felt like something good to do. And we weren't sure we were going to do it, to be honest. We had the idea and it took a while to kind of think through and decide whether we actually wanted to do it. And, and it was nice because by the time we did it, we achieved our minimum aim for the fund and close one. So once we were over that hurdle, we just kind of had the time to luxuriate about whether it made sense for us or not. You know, we didn't need to. So when we did decide to do it, it was in the final close and it far surpassed our expectations in terms of amount raised, et cetera. And specifically, can you remember how much came through the Cedars platform? Yeah, so, well, we raised 2.4 million via Cedars. Half of it was from our personal network and half of it was from the Cedars network, so the public. And it's worth noting that this fund campaign was only open to sophisticated investors and high net worth individuals. Was that right? That's how they're able to offer the public the opportunity to invest in funds. You have to be either a high network or a sophisticated investor. I think it's an FCA requirement. From that side. And I seem to remember that the campaign closed pretty quickly. Can you remember exactly how long it was open for? Yeah, it wasn't long at all, actually. So, well, so it's interesting to note as well the way we structured the campaign. We unusually we offered people the chance to invest anything from £50 to £50,000. So we had a really low entry point, which was really unusual, especially for a fund. And also we absorbed all fees ourselves, which is I haven't heard of anyone else doing that on the Cedars platform. So that meant that we were, we were giving people the opportunity to come in on a kind of equal standing and we weren't setting a kind of a very high bar in terms of affordability for entry point. So this was about genuinely bringing people in as opposed to, you know, raising as much money as possible. And we set, I think we set a target of a million and very quickly, just from our friends and family, we were over that. So then there was a decision about whether we would even go to the general public. But, you know, we wanted to stay true to why we'd done it. So we did go to that final step, but it went really fast. So I think we closed after, it was under two weeks that it was open, as opposed to the four weeks. I can't remember exactly, but very quickly. I think we were open for five days to our friends and family. And then I think, so I think it was about a week that we were open to the deal room, which is where the high net worth and sophisticated investors were in our instance. So, you know, I wanted to close by the end of the year. So it was for that reason and the fact that it was going so quickly and, you know, we didn't need or want too much money. So I just set a date and said, we're going to close at this point. And we did. And then we were able to close by the end of 
2021, which was important to me. And did it surpass your expectations in terms of the amount that you raised and the number of investors? Yes, we were really pleased and overwhelmed with the interest levels. It felt like we could have gone on to raise a lot more, especially if we would have opened out to the wider public. So we went, there were kind of three phases. There was the friends and family, then there was the the deal room, which had high net worth and sophisticated investors in. And then there was the kind of wider Cedars platform where we're where you don't have to be in the deal room, which is almost like it's the segmented area within Cedars. So you know, anyone that came to the website would be able to see it. And as long as they were a high net worth and sophisticated investor, they could invest. And we never got to that stage three because we were so full from the public at stage two. But it definitely felt like we could have gone to stage three and had an even larger pool of investors. But I think it was right for us that we stopped where we did in in terms of testing the waters for this fund and keeping it manageable for this fund. It's something we would explore in future, though, potentially doing a wider crowdfund once we've seen how it's gone with this fund in terms of managing that crowd. And I saw on the campaign that you were looking to open this up to your portfolio company. What was the response like from your portfolio and what were the conversations around the campaign as well? We were really thrilled. There was so much interest. I mean, it's such a nice thing to be able to do, to offer it. I wish we could also offer it to fund two investors as we were going. Sorry, fund two founders as we were going, because it's just such a nice thing to be able to have everyone sharing in in each other's success. And I think that's how everyone feels anyway. So to have the financial incentives to match just feels like the right thing. So the interest was really strong. I mean, founders are very, very busy people and... I think one of the challenges we had was we didn't realise going in, you know, there's actually quite a lot of tick boxes, like especially a lot of people in our instance from our own network were not seen as members before this campaign. And so to transition people into the platform and, you know, they had to sign up, they had to make sure they were certified as a high net worth or sophisticated. And if they weren't, they had to understand why they weren't able to access the campaign. And so actually there was quite a lot of communication needed beyond maybe a typical raise. And I think, you know, we know from kind of pledges that we had a great response rate, but I think we probably could have got even more. If we were doing it again, I think we probably would have had even more that would have been able to get over all the hurdles to invest. Because, you know, it's just things like what country they're in and their tax status and whether they're certified in the right way as hand or worth sophisticated. And we didn't know any of that stuff going in. And because it was an unusual campaign, yeah, it wasn't always that quick for very busy people to sign up. So I think that was a learning. If we did it again, I think we'd probably make sure everyone signed up well in advance almost of the campaign launching um, to ensure that everyone that wanted to invest could invest. And you talked about some of those challenges in terms of setting up the campaign. Would you be able to just walk us through what the process was, how long it took, and what the key learnings from that as well? Yes, yeah, so it was really nice with Cedars, actually, because it was a mutual attraction. That I think we had the idea independently of them, and they had the idea independently of us. And we were looking to speak to them, and then it turned out they'd already got in touch. So that was a really nice meeting of minds in terms of feeling like we had found the right partner and you know they'd done various fund campaigns before and 
they're really nice, friendly team. So we got on with them well and we probably drove them mad because, as I said, we took quite a long time to commit because we just wanted to make sure it was the right thing for us to do and we could manage it and we were focused on, you know, first couple of closes. We always knew if we did it, we'd do it in the final close. So, yeah, we kind of kept them on the edge of their seats, I think, for a while about whether we were going to do it. And then we did do it. We wanted this kind of phased approach and they were really good about helping us plan for that. And they recommended that we would do a, I can't remember what they called it, but you kind of do a a test. Pre-registration list. A pre-registration beforehand. And what was nice was we could mimic that phased approach, even in a pre-registration. So we first did a pre-registration to our friends and family. Then we did a pre-registration to members of the public. And that was very much if this happens, what would you commit? And then the respondent could answer, you know, multiple choice within bands. And then off the back of that interest, seeders then give you a ballpark of typically based on historical conversion, this is where we think your campaign could end up. And we did our own internal analysis on, on what we thought as well. That was a decision point on the basis of the interest that we've seen. Do we want to proceed? So we decided to... Sorry to interrupt. Can you remember what that ballpark figure looked like at the time? I remember that ours was more accurate than theirs, which in fairness they expected because the conversion for our friends and family is obviously different to a classic Cedars member converter. Because if a founder that we've known for five years and we work closely with says they want to invest there, you know, as long as you make it easy for them, they're, they're more likely than the average board to invest in terms of that commitment. And equally, if your mum says she's going to invest, you know, she's probably more likely. So I think the conversion was better than they expected. But I think also it's worth noting the bands. So the way people think, they tend to, like often people think in, you know, like round numbers. So if someone wants to put in £500, they would be in the band. I can't remember the exact bands, but they would, for example, be in the band, say 500 to 1,000. And the band below that might be 200 to 499. And what you would find is that... That 500 would be a common figure in the 500 to 1,000 band. But if you just take a kind of mathematical assumption, you might expect that the average would be somewhere in the middle. But it's not because actually, like, because people think in those round numbers, everyone's almost classically, they're kind of in a higher band than they should be because you'd be better off assuming they're in the 499 band than that was interesting in terms of, you first have to understand how many people would convert and then you have to take a reasonable average within a band. So it's worth noting what a reasonable average is within a band and then having conversion rates that you expect to be true on the basis of the context of your campaign. And so can you remember roughly how long the process took from, from start to finish? Yeah, I think it was about a month from pre-registration to close of the campaign. So I think it was like, There was a couple of weeks for pre-registration and then we had the campaign open for a couple of weeks and it was phased. So it was like, you know, first send out pre-reg to friends and family, then send out pre-reg to the public, then launch to friends and family, then launch to the public. And then we could have gone on, but then we stopped. And was there any sort of key learnings from that process that you would take away for yourself or even for your portfolio companies? I think if you do a private raise, then as much as possible, making sure people are set up in advance is useful because there's a lot of hurdles to overcome. Um, if not, you're just adding more burden to busy people's lives. What else would I say? Yeah, I think do you, 
it's definitely worth having a handle on what you expect in the pre-reg rather than just taking as red because you potentially know your own crowd and customers well. So I think you can have a take. It's at least a valid input into, you know, you might have a different view from the crowd funder or you might have the same view, but it's worth noting as a kind of breadth of outcome in terms of your expectations. I think having someone literally as much as possible 24-7 available to answer queries is important. So if someone asks a question, responding quickly, I think is really useful for everyone. So that was important. And also just things like on Cedars anyway, the process for allowing people to see the investment materials was manual because you have to give that individual consent per person. And so even things like that, you know, when you've got that momentum, if somebody's there wanting to hear more about you and it takes you two days to give them access to that information, then, you know, they might be having their tea by the, and, you know, doing a business meeting, whatever, by, by the time that they get around to seeing an email that you've allowed to give them access. So if you can practically immediately give them that access, then you might be able to get them at that moment where they're engaging. So I think that was useful as well. And I know that some of your portfolio have launched crowdfunding campaigns in the past, the likes of What Three Words, Lick, and most recently Spoke. Did you have any conversations with your portfolio companies before launching the campaign? Or now do you have any conversations with them, sort of advising them on the process at all? We'd already spoken to our portfolio about how their raises have gone just as part of being in touch with them. So I think we knew that information anyway. And we spoke to other funds as well in when we were deciding whether we should do a raise. Because I think objectively, it potentially sounds quite scary as it's quite different to, you know, the rest of fundraising. So we had already spoken to people. It definitely gives you a different take when you've done it yourself in terms of advice. Like, as I said, just like the nitty gritty of it, having somebody 24-7 available is something that you maybe wouldn't think. And, you know, just how it actually works in reality, like the phasing of things, you just have a more detailed understanding of it when you've done it yourself so yes we have chatted to a few people since doing the campaign about the campaign and it's been I think our insight's been relevant I just want to dive into one of the points you made there about conversations with other other funds now I know on Cedars, the likes of Passion Capital and uh, Sustainable Ventures have launched fund campaigns on the Cedars platform And I'm also aware that in terms of the perception of crowdfunding amongst the the VC community, there is still mixed opinions. I think traditionally, you know, crowdfunding is seen in not maybe the best, best light in some cases. What was the conversations that you had with other VCs and just generally in terms of the community about wanting to launch a crowdfunding campaign? I mean, so we personally, especially obviously, you know, we're consumer investors, so we're fans of crowdfunding as long as it's done in the right way and it's managed properly. So I think we came in with that mindset. I think it's actually very trendy at the moment to kind of involve the crowd. So I think that perception has only got better over time. And I think it's at a positive point now where I think most people you ask would be proud to have the crowd in their campaign if it's something they felt they could manage. So I think the conversations we've had with other funds have been what their experience was of managing the process. And then since we've done it ourselves, people have asked us what our experience of managing the process is. Because I think that's the fear point rather than the principle of having a crowd involved. It's how manageable is it? 
Because if you think like, you know, we've got sub 30 LPs, you know, it includes Cedars as one LP. And so behind Cedars, you know, you've got these 400 people. That's dwarfing the number, just volume wise, that's dwarfing the number of other LPs you've got. So I think it's that's what funds are conscious of. It's like you've got this discrepancy of just in number terms of how many people you're suddenly managing via one LP. And that's scary in terms of how you do that. And what does that management look like now that you've closed the fund? How will you be communicating with the Cedars LP? And is that different to the other LPs that you mentioned that you have currently in the fund? No. So we communicate with LPs via quarterly reports. That's the main channel in terms of updates. And obviously they're sent out quarterly. And then, you know, there's annual accounts and and whatever. I think some annual commitments. But that's standard for all LPs. And that's how we've been doing it. Obviously, we're early days. You know, we've got various ideas about how we could potentially work with the crowd, but everything's a balance of whether that would be interesting or useful for them and and the same for us. I think as it stands, we're still just finding our rhythm with, you know, it's important to us that they're treated like other LPs, which they are in terms of the rhythm of reporting cycles. So for now, that's how we've been communicating. But yeah, there's a few ideas we've got for future And is there any concern about information disclosure? Do you split things up at all for the crowd investors versus the other LPs, or do they you know, see exactly the same information that you choose to share? No, we have to be careful what's in the public domain because we have to be respectful to our founders. So we're very conscious that, you know, by nature, much of our crowd is the public. And so therefore, anything we put in a crowdfund or crowd report is technically public. So we have to make sure that anything we put in there, founders are comfortable being in the public domain. So that's the only difference. But I've seen other funds, you know, there's like lots of red lines through reports and stuff. And we don't do that. We craft a report specifically for the crowd with relevant information for them that we know we're able to share. And some extra information as well that's maybe, you know, less interesting for more financial investors. Now, one of the key benefits to crowdfunding for a a consumer brand is obviously involving your customers and and turning them into brand ambassadors. Do you see any sort of similarities? And do you think there will be any benefit from the crowd investors that you have in terms of championing Jamjar and and potentially providing deal flow or providing value in other, other ways? Yeah, I hope so. Like, you know, I hope that we'll get referrals from the crowd and recommendations from the crowd and I think you know we're right in the early days obviously of investing in this fund so I think as brands mature as well having people's feedback on brands I think it's all really useful like that's why we wanted to do this because we wanted to have a sense of what a wider group of people think than ourselves so yeah I definitely hope so I can't remember the exact fund I know that they are London-based and their model is that Every founder they invest in then receives shares within the portfolio. And I guess it's sort of a similar model here. If you do have founders from your portfolio investing in in the fund, then there is that alignment and hopefully that collaboration. Do you think that will positively impact how your founders connect and and sort of collaborate and, and support one another? You know what? It's such a kind of friendly community that I think everyone's happy to help each other anyway. It's just kind of completing the circle. It's that nice extra bit on top. But no, I don't think it will make that much difference because I think that goodwill is there anyway. But I think 
it just reinforces what's already there. So it feels right. It feels like a right, a good structure to have, as opposed to, I think it will make a dramatic difference in people's altruism towards one another, because I think that's separate. And you mentioned earlier that now that you've launched one campaign, this may open the door and you may look to launch another fund campaign, you know, potentially for, for your next fund. Do you think this fund campaign that you've launched will change perceptions within in the market? And do you think we'll see more funds coming to the crowd and opening up to raise a portion of the fund? Yeah, I mean, I think we already are seeing that. We wanted to do it a bit differently, like put our own spin on it in terms of absorbing the fees and having such a low entry point. But I think the momentum's there anyway within funds. And, you know, we certainly learn from people that have come before us, like Venrex and Passion and Seed Camp. You know, I think we're still at the beginning stages of this happening. And I think it's becoming more and more common and it will become more and more common. And I guess just on, on the flip side of that as well, do you think because more funds will be opening up to the crowd, do you think we'll see more brands deciding to go down the route of equity crowdfunding? Possibly. It's already kind of, I think, a well-trodden route. So I don't know what saturation point is. Yeah, I would expect some increase over time. I don't think we are at saturation point yet, but I think the steeper incline is on the fund side because it's still very early days in that market, I think, for funds to raise from the crowd. And, you know, at the moment that I know of, there's only the single Cedars platform in the UK that offers that. So I would expect more platforms to offer the opportunity. I know there's a few that it's like they can offer you a kind of self-managed version, but I think that you'll see more and more offerings in that space to accommodate more and more demand. I think it's certainly an interesting one. I wonder whether or not there will be almost some competition because if you have you know, a fund like Jamjar, who an investor invests in, and then suddenly one of the portfolio then decides to launch a crowdfunding campaign, then I guess the question becomes, would they wait for that brand just to launch a campaign and they would invest directly into that campaign as opposed to investing in the fund and having that spread of all the different portfolio companies? Well, I think what's nice and what Passion have done really well is they've kind of there's the opportunity potentially to facilitate your company's raising from the crowd because you've got your ready-baked crowd that you know you know are relevant for your brands and they'll already have the heads up because they'll know as being part of the jam jar crowd they'll know about certain investments you know well ahead of time of the kind of wider market knowing about them so they'll be able to see hot new brands pop up and when and if they choose to do crowdfunding you know, I'd hope that our crowd can get an opportunity to partake in that. And that's a really interesting upsell, I think. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to see that in the future. And essentially being that that seed for the campaign, because as we know, you know, launching a campaign does require that commitment initially. And, you know, without that platform, then it becomes very difficult to convert new investors. So if the fund can provide that platform and sort of seed the campaign, then I think, yeah, it will be hugely uh, successful for the individual companies. Katie, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Where can we find out more about Jamjar? The Times did an article last week. <laughs> so there's, there's various stuff in the press. Our website, quite simple, but hopefully clear. Or just get in touch. We can tell you more. Great stuff. Katie, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more advice, head over to crowdfundingchampions.com and be sure to subscribe for the latest interviews.